This podcast is brought to you by Talbot County, Maryland, the birthplace of Frederick Douglass. Visit frederickdouglassbirthplace.org to begin your journey into his life. Driving tours, history, and Douglass in his own words at frederickdouglassbirthplace.org. Hi, I'm Carlisle Hashem, and this is Carlisle's Chesapeake. We are here today with Anne Coughlin in County Cork, Ireland. Anne is the author of a chapter in a book edited by Dr. Mark Leone and Professor Lee Jenkins, entitled Atlantic Crossings in the Wake of Frederick Douglass. Welcome to Butterfield. Thank you. I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I'm delighted to be talking about Douglas. And did you ever imagine that you would find Douglas in the middle of green fields here in North Cork? No, I did not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you may wonder, how did I find Douglas in the middle of green fields here in North Cork? Um, I suppose, well, in the, during the 1990s, I returned to third level education as a mature student. I was teaching locally in a local secondary school at the time. And I returned to do my degree in English literature. And one of my favourite parts of that degree course was the the American literature section. And sometimes I think one of the reasons I love American literature is because as children, we had a set of old encyclopedias called The Bookshelf for Boys and Girls. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And it was filled with uh, extracts from the American classics. It was an American publication. So it was filled with extracts from the American classics. And biographies of famous American people, presidents, writers, industrialists, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, whatever. And I just absorbed all of that. I loved it. So it translated very easily into my love for American literature at third level. Now, in UCC, University College Cork, which is in the university in Cork City, um, we are delight. We were very um, fortunate and privileged to have as our professor, Dr. Lee, our professor Lee Jenkins. And she specialises in American literature with an interest in um, African-American literature. Now, one of the thing, two of the things that I think attracted me to Douglas were, to, one of them was the fact that I was interested in how the canon, the literary canon was composed. And what, what I mean by the literary canon is when you go to third level, you're expected to study key authors. They would be Emerson, Thoreau, um, Melville, Poe, Whitman, Dickinson, the standards, these are considered them to be very important in how they write and what they had to say. And it was interesting that there were no black voices in that in that collection of people, in that selection of people, not just in the 19th century, but for the first half of the 20th century as well. But in the 1960s, with the civil rights movement, an interest began to be taken in why these black voices, why marginal voices were were neglected in the canon, why they didn't have a place, why did they didn't sit amongst their white peers. And that 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 idea became agitated, we'd say, in the 60s, in the 70s, then in the 80s, Douglas and his peers were were brought into the canon, were studied as key literary texts, his in particular his 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 first autobiography, his first of three, which is an unusual feat to write three autobiographies. Um, and that became a core text in the American canon. And then in the 90s, in the 80s as well, historians in particular started... You, excuse me for a second, Anne. When you're saying it became 
those three autobiographies became core texts well, sorry, for the... one of them, the first in particular. Oh, okay. Um, he three, wrote but, one but, of three. But the point I want to understand here is the American canon being that the Irish believed that this would be the American canon. No, well, um, the Americans themselves, we 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 studied, we looked at what the Americans considered important. Oh, I see. And we looked at the fact that they didn't consider Douglas important or a black voice important. Yes. And why weren't they there? Right. But we watched then how the black voice became incorporated into the canon and how in the 80s and the 90s, historians began to to, to resurrect and to recover Douglas's past, his, his amazing place in history, and then his amazing place in letters, in writing, and to go through the archives, to build up a picture, to increase our resources. And then literary critics went in and looked at the writing and looked at the context and thought about why he was important in the American context. But for us in Ireland, a second thing came into play. And that second thing is the fact that in 1845, Douglas came to Ireland for four months and spent over over a year and a half in, um, in England. So he did a two-year tour of the British Isles. And that is that is an amazing thing to think about, particularly when you consider that that visit was a formative part of a very long and illustrious career. It was a very important turning point in his life. So and Anne, that's what interested me. And and he was only about 28, 27, yeah, 27, 27 when he came, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> fleeing... <clears throat> Well, I guess you could look at it two ways. He was fleeing from being caught uh, after writing his first autobiography because he was giving himself away more uh, to <laughs> divulge where he was hiding. But when he came to the when he came to Ireland, he was a fugitive. He was on the run from the American. He was a criminal. Um, and that's why he had to leave why he had to leave America, which is something I'd like to talk about in a minute. But um, that is th- those two points, the fact that he didn't have a place in the American canon and how he got that place, and then the fact that he came to the British Isles, Ireland in particular, and how important that was to his development. For, for practical reasons, for, there are three practical reasons. One, he reprinted his narrative. Yeah, there's an Irish publication of that. Two, the people he met. He met... He met two of the most important social figures, social and political figures in 19th century Ireland. And in, in one was Daniel O'Connell, a constitutional nationalist, and the other was Father Theobald Matthew, the apostle of temperance, um, an advocate of temperance and a very, a very important figure in Irish social history. So he met these incredible people. But what's really interesting for me, and the reason I maintained a very long interest in Douglas, during my undergraduate, during my ma- I did my master's on Douglas and I did my PhD on Douglas and Ireland. So I have a long history with Douglas. Yes, he he's like the other man in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the reason I maintained such an interest is because the depth of the the depth of the importance of his trip to Ireland, and there was so much information to glean from in the archives and to glean from his writings that had never been considered. So I just I just spent a lot of time looking at that and the influence that Ireland had on his thinking and on his his ideas of himself and on his sense of personhood and selfhood. 
Okay, so let's put Frederick Douglass in a context here. He comes to Ireland, and you're going to tell us more about that trip across mm-hmm. the Atlantic Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean being a mixing bowl. Yeah. Um, he, but he comes across, and he is still a slave. Yeah. And as a slave, he was never treated as a human being, legally at least, and <laughs> and socially oftentimes as well. So... He comes to Ireland, and Ireland doesn't have a black and white society, uh, more or less. It's but it has it has its own analogy in terms of it had in terms that it had a nationalist and an establishment a divide within society. So Ireland was a very very divided society in nineteenth um, century Ireland. Ireland was a colony, a British colony. It was part of the British Isles. It was ruled from London by an English parliament. Um, this was a Protestant parliament. Um, Catholic, the, the Irish Catholics were nationalists. They were Irish people who had been colonised hundreds of years before um, by the Anglo-Normans and had wanted their own independence. We had a separate language, we had a separate culture, we had a separate sense of identity, we had a separate political system, we had a separate law, legal system. Um, But the English imposed all of their ways of, they imposed their language, their legal system, their parliament on the Irish. And the Irish had, and and to maintain their power, they had introduced in in the 17th, in the 18th century, they had introduced a penal code, which was a, a, um, a, a code or a system of laws which forbade Catholics from voting, from holding high office in in the professions, in the judiciary, in the legal circles, from carrying arms, um, from education beyond a certain point. So there were um, there were very very uh, from practicing religion. Um, and that's why you would have the mass rocks around the place because Catholics would have to go into the woods and up into the mountains to practice mass um, in a hidden, in, in, in secret. Um, so, so these were, um, this is how the, the Irish Catholics lived. Most of, most of them were, were tenants of landlords um, who, and they lived, a lot of them lived in penury. Now you, did, you would have had a farming class as well, but... The Ireland of the 1840s, when when Douglas arrived, was um, a very divided society, divided religiously, politically, and in terms of wealth. You had huge swathes of the country lived in abject poverty and were very badly off. Um, There was a huge population in the country. There were over 8 million people at the time. Um, There was... Quite, a, quite an amount of immigration from Ireland to England to America. The Ireland that Douglas came to in 1840 was a divided country politically. You had, it was divided, it was, we were, un, we were under the British crown, under the British parliament. Um, it was a farming country. Manufacturing had been stalled and stymied by the English through various taxes so that we would never have an advantage over the English. Mm. Um, so we were at a disadvantage from many angles. Yeah. So Douglas came into this society, and he was, he was, he was delighted with the beauty of Dublin, the buildings. He was delighted with the hospitality he received, and he was absolutely horrified with the poverty that he saw. He was shocked, and in, 
he also then had to negotiate a very tricky path because his hosts were middle class. They were Protestant, Unitarian, mostly Quaker. Um, they were reformists. They were very progressive. But he found then that he couldn't exactly comment negatively about the poverty that he saw. So it was when he left Ireland that he spoke about the Irish poverty and what he saw, not while he was in Ireland, because he didn't want to upset his hosts. Frederick Douglass was among the most famous Americans of his day, an internationally renowned author, orator, and statesman whose words and deeds helped shape the modern United States. His journey began in Talbot County, Maryland, which honors his legacy with the Frederick Douglass Park on the Tuckahoe. Other locations throughout Talbot County commemorate his birth, childhood, and return trips as an adult, during which he was hailed as a hero. Visit frederickdouglasbirthplace.org to begin your exploration of his life. You'll find free historical information and the full texts of all three of his autobiographies. Driving tours through small towns and the countryside help you follow in the footsteps of one of the most significant figures of the 19th century. Douglas once said, What is possible for me is possible for you. To celebrate that possibility, plan a trip to scenic Talbot County, Maryland, which welcomes travelers to experience more than 600 miles of coastline. Go to frederickdouglasbirthplace.org. Let's talk about William Lloyd Garrison and the gentleman who accompanied Buffum. Douglas to Ireland um, and why he came here specifically. Okay, so will we will we will we just skip back across the Atlantic to America, <laughs> will we? Yeah, okay. let's cross across again. <clears throat> so we, we 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 go back across the Atlantic and take ourselves back to the early 1840s, 41, 42, when Douglas started speaking as an abolitionist lecturer on the circuit. Brilliant speaker, brilliant man, incredible story, very dramatic. In New England. Where, in New England, Massachusetts, Boston. Um, incredibly well told. And people doubted the truth of his story. Number one, that, it, that such an amazing story could have happened and he and for him to survive it. And then number two, that he could tell so this story so well. So he was compelled to write his autobiography to show that he was indeed speaking the truth. And in order to show that it was the truth, he had to name names and places. So he was now he was now out in the open. His owner could now come and, and reclaim his property. And everybody knew this, including Garrison. Um, Henry Lloyd Garrison was his, you could say, manager. He was the guy who would have organised the abolition circle. He was a printer, a Quaker printer, originally Quaker printer um, in 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 um, in Massachusetts. Incredibly um, progressive thinker, a risk taker, and not afraid to stand up against the to defend what was the indefensible in nineteenth century America. Um, Slavery. Slavery, yeah. But, but incredibly focused on, on what he wanted to do and the message he wanted to get out there and was prepared to put his time and his resources into that endeavour. So he had abolitionist lecturers on the circuit. Um, Douglas was one of his lecturers and Douglas was one of his best lecturers. And everybody knew this. So Douglas was now in a difficult situation. He had... Um, 
a best-selling narrative on his hand, the narrative, his first autobiography. But he was now in a situation where he could be recaptured. So Douglas had thought about doing a tour of the British Isles and Garrison decided, yes, this is a really good idea. We need to just get you out of the country for a little while. So he's he was Douglas was sent to uh, the British Isles for two years. Now, the reason it was so easy for Garrison to do this is because Garrison already had a network of abolitionist friends that he knew personally, had met, and was in very regular correspondence with. And these were scattered around Ireland and, and England. And Douglas wasn't the first no. uh, black man to come across the Atlantic Ocean to tell the tale of being a slave. No, Charles um, Lennox Ramon had been in Ireland and spent some time in Ireland previous to that in the early 1840s. And that's another interesting connection, actually, because when Ramon was in Ireland, he toured extensively, um, there was an address prepared because just there's just another little side story, well, another story here in that I had said to you that there was some immigration from Ireland to America because of the, the conditions that people were living under. The, the famine, the potato blight no, had no, not no. occurred. Had then. not occurred. No, right. this is just ordinary, everyday poverty before the famine. The right. famine had... Now, there were small famines. Famine occurred regularly, but there was nothing like the Great Famine, and that's why it's called the Great One. But um, when Ramon was in Ireland um, at the start of the 1840s, um, Three of the abolition, three of the key abolitionists, um, Richard Webb, um, Allen, and Houghton, they are they sat down and they organised an address to the Irish in America because while the Irish in Ireland had every sympathy for the slave, for the plight of the slave, and were anti-slavery and wanted slavery abolished, once the Irish immigrated to America, they were now in a different situation where they were in competition with slave labour. Slave labor. So they were were not inclined to advocate anti-slavery. They um, were trying. They were now in a new situation. And I want to, want to draw out here that the Irish who might have been poor and sent to the United States were perhaps indentured servants who would then be freed after seven, ten years. Not all of them, but but that's likelihood could have happened. That would have been much more common in the eighteenth century. Okay. It had faded. It was it was a mechanism of by which people got by which the Irish and the English um made found got their passage to America, were established, had food and accommodation, got themselves started. But that as a system had faded by the time the eighteen forties came. So people were going independently. Oh. So they were they were had to stand on their own two feet or go to family members who had preceded them, who had gone out there before them. So it was slightly different. So it was more difficult for them. Yeah. Not not justifying their what they did, but that's just the way it was. Um so the the Irish abolitionists knew that once the Irish went to America, they did not advocate for anti-slavery. They did not support abolition. And they wanted to reach out to their fellow Irishmen in America. So they prepared this address and they got they they got people to sign it. And they got 60,000 people to now, sign it. Let, let's just, let's just um, explain to our listenership that this signature was 60,000 people in Ireland to yeah. get back to the United States, this mm-hmm. petition... But two very important people signed that petition. 
And they are the two people I mentioned earlier on, Daniel O'Connell and Father Theobald Matthew. And they were seen as crucial to the exercise because the Irish um, saw these as very important figures and listened to what they had to say when they were in Ireland. But And the, the, abolition, the Irish abolitionists, Webb, Houghton and Allen, felt that the Irish in America would pay attention to O'Connell and Matthew once they heard their voices again. But that's not how it happened. The Irish address was a failure. <laughs> the Archbishop, the, the Bishop of New York said Matthew's signature must be a fake. Um, and they did not believe it. They dismissed it. But my point here is that Doug, when, when Ramon brought that address to Boston, to Fanwell Hall, Douglas saw it. So it wasn't Douglas, Douglas that brought that. No, no, it oh, was, Ramon. was Ramon. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. So Douglas... That's pre-Douglas going to Ireland. Exactly, Oh, yeah. that's big. Yeah, yeah. So Douglas went, came to Ireland having some sense that, oh, yeah, there's a guy... Well, he'd have known O'Connell. There's a guy, Father Matthew. Yeah, these are important <gasps> people. Oh, wow. So he would have known, yeah. and he would have known that their signatures were so important. Yes, uh-huh. That that these two people could speak to the Irish population anywhere. Right. The American, the Irish living in America very bluntly said, do not interfere in our affairs. They said back across the Atlantic. Wow. Okay, moving on. <clears throat> Frederick so Douglass. will we go on board ship? Yes, let's go on okay, board let's ship. Go on board. <laughs> <laughs> so... Douglas had to wave goodbye to his, his, his wife, Anna Murray, and their very young children, very young children. And she was left on her own with these children, depending on the, um, the Anti-Slavery Society to provide her with money and assistance. So, I mean, she really is a heroine in all of this because she had to keep the whole thing going on her own at home. And she, I just want to point out, was a free woman. From the well, I don't know about from the start, but she, when she married Frederick Douglass, she had been free. Mm. Uh, and so I'm sorry, yeah. go on. So he boarded the Cambria, which was a ship of the Cunard line. It was the mail packet ship from that ran regularly between um, Boston and Liverpool. It usually took less than two weeks, and in this case, it took eleven days. The the, the trip. Um, excuse me. Um, they usually had room for about 120 people. It could carry up to 120 people, but as the mail always took precedence, that depended on how much mail, the, the, the passenger, passenger numbers would have depended on how much mail they had on board. So getting the, the post on the, the ship was the priority. Douglas was part of this, um, this passenger cohort, and he travelled with a man, Buffum, who was a carpenter from Lynn, a white man, um, an abolitionist, um, a, a good living man, a self-made man, very wealthy. And he paid for Douglas's ticket. He paid for a first-class ticket for Douglas on board ship. But once Douglas stepped on board ship, he was not allowed into the first-class section. And there was quite a hubbub about this. And in protest, Buffum refused to take his place in first-class and he went, and Douglas was sent to steerage and Buffum went with him. Now, there was another group of people on board ship with them. <clears throat> this was the, the Hutchinsons who travelled around America <laughs> singing. And they were very, um, they were great advocates of anti-slavery. And they sang at uh, many anti-slavery rallies, meetings, um, get-togethers. 
So they were on board ship as well. And Douglas was uh, acquainted with those, familiar with them. And he, they, they used to come and visit him in steerage. So the, 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 path, the ship passed quite well. Um, the, the crossing was fine. Um, there was a, a, what amazed Douglas was the mixture of people on board ship. And like, when you think about it, a ship is like an independent republic um, bobbling, bobbing away there on the Atlantic. And, and all your kind of, you'd imagine all your legal, your, your, the strictures that hold you to a nation state, they're not quite so strong on board ship in the middle of the ocean. So it's, it's like a neutral setting. It's like your mixing bowl. So on this, in this mixing bowl, you had a mixture of Douglas and Buffum and people from the northern states. You had southern, you had southern American gentlemen, slaveholders, slaveholders, and they were slaveholders. You had Irish, you had English, and you had other nationalities. So you had quite a mix of people on board ship, and Douglas commented on that in his letters. Um, the passing, the sailing was fine, and then, um. Ireland, the coast of Ireland was spotted. So they all rushed up on deck and they could see the outline of the west of Ireland, the mountains, the um, Connemara and down towards the south and where it's absolutely stunning. And I always think that some of the best views of Ireland are from the islands. It's, you get incredible views of the country. Um, so the day before they were due to land, in Captain Liverpool, oh yes, in, Liverpool. in Liverpool, yes, they were going to land in Liverpool. Captain Judkins, I forgot Captain Judkins, he was the captain of the ship. And before they were due to, to, to land in Liverpool, um, he invited Douglas to give um, an anti-slavery presentation. So Douglas was delighted with the opportunity, came up and prepared to give his demonstration. And he started to read extracts from slave advertisements. And there were gentlemen from, gentlemen from the southern states who had plenty of brandy on board. And they started to object and complain and contradict him and try to shout him down. And then other people, but, but Douglas kept speaking. And he, had, he, he, he's actually one of the, like, I love oratory. I love listening to oratory. And I would love to have had the opportunity to sit in a room and listen to him speak. Well, he was uh, taller, I've read, than most men mm. of that age. Mm. So he was at at least six feet tall yeah, six foot, yeah. and um and then he had a mane of hair and he was very straight very tall and very straight and very good looking and he he wore his hair he, he was always beautifully and immaculately turned out um but his voice was incredible he had a booming rich voice he was a great mimic which which is an asset to any speaker and he he was master of all the skills of oratory his pitch, his tone, um, raising his voice. Well, when you say he was master, you're going to tell us about Patrick O'Connell and how... Daniel. I'm sorry, Daniel O'Connell, and how he uh, was... Uh, Frederick Douglass came and learned from a master. <laughs> well, he, well, he had the skills already. And because he was so skilled himself, he could then appreciate another master. Yes. Yeah. So on board ship, here's Douglas, uh, an amazing speaker with a fine, strong voice, well able to drown out the, 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 the heckling he was getting from, from the audience. But then other people started to interfere and say, no, leave Douglas speak. And there was an Irish man um, interrupted and said, no, he must speak. And then he started, then things got rowdy and got loud and got messy. And in the end, the captain had to come up and threatened to put the American gentleman in chains if they did not desist. So they re went retreated to another part of the ship and Douglas continued with his presentation. Now, Douglas was well used to this 
from his time in America, because this is, would have been his ex experience around America. However, I think it surprised him that it happened on board ship. But in a way, it delighted him too, because it gave him great grist to his mill and he made good use of it in his presentations. When he landed in Liverpool, they reported it to a newspaper who then reported it and they made sure that it was heard about throughout the British Isles. So it was even in a neutral space in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on board ship, slavery and its adherence followed Douglas and tried to control him, tried to silence him. And the and the crowd being those Mixed. on board and the captain sided with Douglas. No, yes. we want to hear this story. Uh, so and that was that that just gave Douglas a taste of what was to come. Mm -hmm. The taste of the support and the equality he would experience in the, the British Isles. Um and that is why that is one of the reasons why his trip to um, Ireland and the United and the United Kingdom is so important. And you've just set the stage. <laughs> we will be talking more about Douglas as he comes to County Cork. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, carlyleschesapeake.com, to hear more in our series about Frederick Douglass. This podcast is brought to you by Talbot County, Maryland, the birthplace of Frederick Douglass. Visit frederickdouglassbirthplace.org to begin your journey into his life. Driving tours, history, and Douglass in his own words at frederickdouglassbirthplace.org.